Amen. And so this morning we continue in a series in Luke's Gospel, uh, chapter 11. It is Luke's account of the Lord's Prayer. The church has, for its entire history, seen uh, the prayer the Lord Jesus gives us here as a manual for the spiritual life. And so we are taking uh, these verses, verse by verse, line by line, going through them in the effort of asking the Lord to make us a church uh, that prays, a praying church. And so again, just taking the summer and looking at, at this. And we come this morning, uh, and you can tell thematically from the service uh, where Jesus tells us that we should be praying, hallowed be your name. And so let's read together from Luke chapter 11, just the first two verses there. And uh, so it's, it's uh, printed for you in the worship folder. It's on the screen uh, behind me. And also if you're at home, it's on your screen. And so let's, let's look at it together. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say this, Father, hallowed be your name. This is the word of the Lord. If you would say with me, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. And so if loving God above all things is the first and greatest commandment, as we know that it is, then praying for God's name to be praised and for him to be loved above all things is the first and greatest petition. Hallowed be your name, he tells us here. It is the alpha prayer. It is the prayer that frames all other kinds of prayer. And for the sake of time, we're just going to get right into it this morning and ask some questions of this text. Uh, it's just this one little verse, this one little phrase, but it, we're going to look at it in the order of the whole prayer and, and think about it in the context of the entire scriptures. But if we're called by God to pray here, hallowed be your name, we have to ask, well, what does it mean to do that? What does it mean to hallow God's name? And why must we hallow God's name? And how can we hallow God's name? How can we become people who hallow his name? And so those are the Points of the outline that I've given to you on the back of that sheet where we just read from the scriptures. When we think about hallowing God's name, what, why, and how, because Jesus, in the context of the larger uh, teaching of the scriptures, tells us about all three of those things. So let's just walk through the text together. First, considering what it means, what does it mean to hallow God's name? Well, that word hallow means uh, to treat something as sacred and ultimate. To hallow God's name then means to set his name above every other name, to make his name, his reputation, his fame, his glory the most important thing, the most crucial thing. So what exactly then are we praying when we say, Father, hallowed be your name? It's something like you're coming before the Lord to say, God, bring glory to yourself. Make yourself known. Make yourself famous. Cause your power and your beauty in all that you do to shine forth for all to see. Because that's the greatest thing that can happen. In my life, it's the greatest thing that can happen. In your life, it's the greatest thing that can happen in the world would be for God to do just that. Now, we've said that theology is more important than methodology in prayer. Right? Over and over again the last few weeks, that theology is more important than methodology in prayer. If you struggle with prayer, probably the root cause of that struggle has more to do with your theology than it does with your methodology. All prayer is really just getting God right. Think about it that way. All prayer, the whole, the whole habit and act of prayer is really just getting God right. You don't get the theology right and then pray, you pray to get it right. 
You don't just pray for God's name to be hallowed, in other words. You pray in order that his name may be hallowed. You pray as his name is hallowed in your own heart. So prayer is not just asking God to do things for you. That comes later, we'll see. The first prayer is, God, help me get you right in my own heart. Help me to honor and esteem and love you above all the other things in my life. John Piper's written a a book, and I list it for you. Just in case you don't know, you see after the the scripture there, there's resources. I try to, if I'm going to draw from a resource, because so many people ask me, hey, what was that book? And I try to put them there for you, so you'll see it there. He's written a book called God's Passion for His Glory. And it's a difficult book. Uh, It's an introduction to an essay written by Jonathan Edwards that was profoundly influencing John Piper's life and ministry and really mine as well. But the, the, um, the essay written by Edwards was entitled The End for Which God Created the World. And in that essay, it's rather lengthy. And if you've never read anything by Jonathan Edwards, it's difficult. It's very, very intellectually challenging. But Edwards argues in great detail that in all God does, he is supremely motivated by the display of his own glory. That's what Edwards contends, that in everything God does, he is supremely motivated, not singly motivated, but supremely motivated by the display of his own glory. And really what Jonathan Edwards does in that, in that, um, in that essay is he just goes um, through the Bible, almost you know, verse by verse, it feels like, just showing how often the Lord himself displays the motivations and intentions of his heart being in whatever it is he's doing, that it be for his glory. Now, I could be here, truly, for whatever time allotment you would give me, whether it be 30 minutes or 45 minutes or two hours this morning, just showing you verse after verse after verse where the Lord himself declares that to be true. We don't have time for that, but let me just give you a few examples of what Edwards was trying to tease out from the biblical text. He says, Isaiah 48, 11, for example, if you want to write some of these down, you can look them up later if you want as we go through this. But in Isaiah 48, 11, the Lord kind of declares over everything he does. He says this, for my own sake, for my own sake, I will do it. You say, do what? Everything. For my own sake, he says, for my own sake, I do it. For how shall my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. If you read through the book of Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel there, it's, I, I started, I, it really kind of um, came to light to me this last time we read through Ezekiel this past year. You'll, you'll see over and over again, and everything God says about what he's doing in Ezekiel, about sending his people into exile, about rescuing them from the Babylonian exile and returning them to their land, I, I can't even count the number of times. It has to be a hundred or two or, or even more where the Lord says, he's describing what he's doing, and he says, then they shall know that I am the Lord. They shall know that I am the Lord. In Isaiah 61, it's this beautiful passage, verses 3 and 4, where the Lord is talking about the way he's going to take our, our ashes and turn them to beauty. And he's, going to take, he's going to do this great reversal in the lives of his people. And then he says, I'm going to bring them back to their land and I'm going to establish them as oaks of righteousness, as a planting of the Lord, that I might be glorified, he says. In Ephesians chapter 1, which Jonathan read, did you catch it three times in that text? 
all of God talking about what he's doing to save us. Paul writing about what God has done on his own, in his own strength, on his own initiative to save us. And he says over and over again, it is for the praise of his glory. He loves us for the praise of his glory. He chose chose us for the praise of his glory. He redeemed us for the praise of his glory. He has forgiven us for the praise of his glory. He has set a spirit in us for the praise of his glory, he says over and over again. Think about Jesus' mission. In In John chapter 12, verse 27, here's how Jesus described the moment of his turning intentionally towards the cross. He said, for now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. And I like the NIV here. It says, no. Jesus says no to his own soul. No, for this purpose, I've come to this hour. And do you know what his prayer, remember what his prayer is? Father, glorify your name. And then John says a voice from heaven comes and the voice from heaven says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it. In Romans 9, chapter 9, verses 22 through 24, Paul is even reflecting on how even judgment even God in judgment, even the wrath of God against sin is meant for his glory. He says, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and make his power known, has vessels prepared for destruction? This is, these are hard words, but it talks about vessels prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. Do you see what, is, what the motivation is there? Psalm 23.3, you might be familiar with, he leads me in paths of righteousness. Can you finish it? For his name's sake. And even Psalm 25, 11, it says, he forgives my sin and your sin, not for our sake, but for his. And so John Piper, reflecting on what Edwards has done in that long essay there, as he just goes in so many places, it's overwhelming. He says, the most passionate heart in the universe for God is God's heart. He is not an idolater. God does not love anything more than he loves himself. His greatest joy is making himself known. And therefore, our greatest joy should be to see him glorified in and through us. And our greatest prayer, our most consistent prayer, the prayer behind all of our praying should be this prayer here. Hallowed be your name. Because as the kids know, and I hope you do too, the kids because they've been catechized here recently, what is the chief end of man? It's to glorify God. It's as we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it for God's glory. Or in Romans eleven thirty six, for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be the glory. Do you see where the scripture's directing us? Do you see where the Bible is pointing us? Romans three twenty three says, sin is falling short of God's glory. In other words, it's living your life principally motivated by your own glory and not God's, by your own reputation and not his. Not orbiting your life around him, but wanting instead for you yourself to be the sun. Wanting for you yourself to be the gravitational center for everyone and everything else as they orbit around you. But the Bible throughout describes a Godward direction for all of life. There is a Godward direction and aim for God's life, and so there should be for ours as well. And it's captured in this particular prayer that we prayed at the beginning of the service, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be glory. And so when we pray, hallowed be your name, we are citing 
with God's heart that esteems his own name above all else and against our hearts, which would seek in big and small ways to take his place. We're saying about whatever is happening in our life at that particular moment, you know, there's something ultimate at stake here. This is an opportunity for God to be glorified, and that's more important than how I'm feeling about this or what I want out of what's happening. And when you pray, hallowed be your name, you're saying, oh God, do it. Do it. Act for your own sake and not for mine. Glorify your own name, whatever that means for me. You see what a courageous prayer that is. And so if you're praying for your kids, God means for you to pray all the things that are on your heart. To be honest with them about all the stuff that you're, that you're feeling and thinking about whatever it is is happening in your life. But then also to pray for the main thing. To come to him and work through, work your heart toward being motivated not by your anxiety or your fear or by a desire for your own glory or just for good things, but to see him glorified as the principal means of your praying. Now, let's apply this before we move on to the next, um, the next little part. Let's apply this to the, to the practice of prayer. Let me ask a question of you so you can gauge your own heart. Here's a great diagnostic of how um, central this kind of praying is to your life. Do you ever pray and just adore God? Do you ever pray and not in the course of your prayers ask God for anything? I built into my daily schedule time for prayers like that. Anne Lamott, I think I've shared this with you, uh, said there are really three prayers. You can boil all praying down to three prayers and they are these. Help. Wow. Thanks. And so I have a time every day where I pray wow prayers. It's all I do. I just take a moment to pray a wow prayer. I read a psalm. I listen to a song. I do whatever I have to do to kind of just set my mind on the beauty, the glory, uh, the wonder of who God is. The, the catechism lists in the, what we quoted a while ago, his titles, his attributes, his regulations, his works, and his promises. So maybe... Uh, that's good advice, I think. Maybe you pick an attribute of God. You say, oh, God's sovereignty, and then you just begin to pray through it and think out the implications of it and turn them into worship and just set your affections upon whatever is true of God in, in that thing that you're thinking about. Or you take one of God's titles. He is a king. He is a shepherd. He is a husband, right? And, and, you, and you maybe take out a journal and, and journal through it or, or a promise God says over and over again, do not fear for I'm with you. And maybe you just take a moment at some point and say, you know, I just, I'm just going to sit with that. And you allow your heart to be warmed by the thought that God says over and over again that you should not be afraid because he's with you. Now, that's just a few examples of a way to practically pray this prayer. But here's the main thing. Prayer, we learn, is not just to get what you need from God. Prayer is not just to go to him to get what you need from him. It's to learn to go to him as the thing you need. So secondly then, if that is what it means to hallow his name, to go to him as the thing you need, we see why also you must hallow his name. Now notice the order of the prayer itself. And here it would be helpful if you have a Bible because I've only printed through verse 2. But if you were to look and go down, you'll see that Jesus says here, say when you pray, Father... That's the starting line, but then the next one is, hallowed be your name. So that's next. And then he goes on down, and it comes, hallowed be your name comes before give us our daily bread, and it comes before forgive us our, our sins. Now, I don't want to make too much of this, 
but I think that's, that's important. You praise God before you petition him. You praise God before you confess, Jesus says here, because praise frames all the other kinds of praying. So let's talk about this for a minute. Let's think about that rubric and just dive into this just a bit. Petition then, as you pray, give us, this day, give us this day our daily bread. That petition is how you look at the world. Confession, forgive me my sins, is how you look at yourself. Now this is, uh, this is Tim Keller almost word for word because it's so good and I can't possibly say it better than he did. But he, he says, you know, what, what you're learning here is Jesus is saying all the problems you have in relating to the world and relating to yourself are problems of adoration. All of the problems you have and the way you view the world or the way you view yourself are because you're not properly hallowing God's name. You have to get that right first because without hallowing God's name first, you'll have, on the one hand, a wrong view of the world. And because you have a wrong view of the world, you'll either, you, either you won't ask of him the way you should or you'll ask wrongly of him. And those are really the two, uh, the two dangers You'll ask, you won't ask or you'll ask wrongly or selfishly. And in James chapter 4, James mentioned those. He says, in one verse he says, you do not have because you do not ask. And then immediately in the next verse he says, and you do not, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend on your own passions and desires. So imagine a narrow pass with sheer cliffs on both sides. And on the one side is the danger of not asking. And on the other side is the danger of asking wrongly, selfishly. It's hallowing God's name that keeps you from falling off on either side. Because if you are properly praising God, then it'll be less likely that you'll be overly self-centered in your praying. If your first prayer is hallowed be your name, then your next prayer won't be, P.S. give me what I want. Because those two things are at odds. You'll, you, you're, you'll, you're decentering yourself when you praise God. When you pray this prayer, hallowed be your name, you're decentering yourself. You're putting all the focus back on him and not you, which means when you ask, when you get around to asking, you'll be less likely to ask, ask selfish, selfishly. But at the same time, if you're properly praising God, you won't be self-conscious or afraid of asking either. Jesus said, ask anything in my name and it will be done. I have a question. Do you believe that? Do you believe him when he says that? Ask anything in my name and it will be done. Anything, because nothing is impossible with God. And if you work yourself towards believing through praise that truth, then you won't be afraid to ask. So, you see, so the prayer, hallowed be your name, will help you go on asking, but not asking selfishly. That's why it's so important. But in the same way, Without hallowing God first, you'll have a wrong view of yourself. And if you have a wrong view of yourself, you won't confess at all, or you'll confess too much. If you're not properly praising God, if you don't have an accurate view of his holiness and justice, then you won't feel the weight of your sin as you should. It's, it's not just getting caught that causes confession or feeling guilty. That, that those aren't the only thing that leads to confession. It's the sight of God that leads to confession. Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up in chapter 6 of his prophecy, and he heard the seraphim crying out as we just sang, holy, holy, holy. And in response to what he saw and what he heard, it says that he said, woe to me, I am lost, and began to confess his sins. And this is John Calvin 101. He said, all knowledge consists in two parts, of knowing God and knowing yourself. However, he said, you will never 
see yourself rightly until you first look upon God's face and then, these are his words, descend from contemplating him to scrutinize yourself. There's a reason why in our services we read the law and then confess our sins. Calvin said you might be very pleased with yourself, which I am a lot of the time, if I'm honest this morning, but if you could get a sight of God's holiness like Isaiah, if you could just get a glimpse, then what earlier masqueraded as righteousness would begin to appear as filthy and wicked and leading to confession. But here's the thing. But also, if you're not praising God rightly, if you don't properly comprehend his love and his mercy, it's possible that in confessing, you may begin to confess too much. You may begin to wallow in your sin. Murray McShane said, for every one look at sin, take ten looks at Jesus. But what if that gets flipped? What if, what if for every one look at Jesus, you take ten looks at your sin? That's a problem. See, hallowed be your name is the prayer that allows you to go on to confess your sins, but not overconfess. To not take your sins more seriously than God's grace. But do you see how this works? See how it works? Do you see why this is so important? I know this is kind of technical. I don't have a lot of fun illustrations this morning. I'm sorry. I told somebody, by the way, you can tell how prepared. If Tony Ellswick is not prepared to preach on a Sunday, you will know because he will tell story after story after story after story. He'll just try to make you laugh by telling stories. If I'm not prepared, you'll know because there won't be any stories. I had a busy week this week. But here's the thing. What is the opposite of petition? What is the sin that replaces petition? And here, I just need to confess to you this morning. I find that in my own life, I complain about a lot of things that I should be praying about. Complaining is a substitute for praying. And instead of complaining, I should be praying, but hardwired into me, into you, is the temptation to distrust God's heart. It's the lie of the serpent in the garden, that tree God told you not to eat from. You know why, don't you? You know why he's keeping that from you. It's because it's the best one. And because God won't give me everything, I feel I can't trust him for anything. And complaining is a failure to hallow God's name. And if I'm complaining, it's because I'm not praising. Praise is what can heal my heart of complaining. But what's the opposite of confession? What's the sin that replaces confession? Well, it has to be boasting. And boasting is the other substitute for praying. And so complaining and boasting, if you're caught like me and either of those this morning, they are the enemies of prayer. And the remedy for both is this first prayer that Jesus teaches us, that we would first come from a place of saying, Oh, Father, hallowed be your name. And so it's important, which is why, lastly, we have to ask the question, well, then how can you hallow God's name? How is it that, that you can begin to pray like this? Where, where, does the, where does the strength and the insight come from to do it? And I'm going to have to borrow from Matthew for a bit of this part. But in Matthew, the prayer here, it's a little different if you weren't aware of that. It's, uh, Matthew's version of the Lord's Prayer is extended from Luke's. And in Matthew chapter 6, it goes like this. Pray then like this, Jesus says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. God is Father, according to Jesus. He is loving and kind and compassionate and close, but he is Heavenly Father, which means he is majestic and transcendent, powerful, 
and holy. He is both great and good. It's the same in Psalm 23. The psalmist begins, the Lord, right? The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord. The Lord. God's immeasurable greatness, his self-existence and infinitude. He's my shepherd, right? He is, he is immeasurably good. The I am, with regard to no other, my shepherd immeasurably good. In Exodus chapter 33, Moses prays, show me your glory. And God says this, he answers that request by saying, I will cause all of my goodness to pass before you, but you cannot see my face. For if you look upon my face, you will die. (laughs) And I, I just, I love that. I mean, that's, you know, he says, God is good. He is gracious, but he's not safe. You can't get too close. You can see his back. The Lord says, Moses, you can look upon my back, but not upon my face because I am such an overwhelming reality. That if you were to look upon me, it would be like an Indiana Jones movie. Your, your face would melt off. He is inexhaustibly good and inexhaustibly great. And always both at the same time. And so Tim Keller uses this analogy of a pendulum to describe how praise works in the heart. He says, you know, the further, and you know how you, you, the further you swing a pendulum to one side, of course, the further it swings to the other side. And so the pendulum can go like this, or it can go like this. And he says, the more, the more of God's greatness you see, the more his beauty and his love will mean to you. And the more of his goodness you see, the more you will be all by his greatness. And so the key to hallowing God's name is to see more and more of his greatness and then more and more of his goodness and then more and more of his greatness and then more and more of his goodness and back and forth and back and forth to know that he is a father, that he yearns for his children to be happy, but he's an omnipotent father. He's heavenly. I told you I would do anything for my kids. But of course, there's some things I can't do. But nothing is impossible with God. And it's those two things together. It's his goodness and his greatness. His goodness and his greatness that cause your heart to hallow him. If he was just father, if you could, if you could love him, but you would not revere him, you wouldn't trust him. If he's just heavenly, you might fear him, but you wouldn't adore him. Your heart would not be warm to him. And this is what it means to know him personally, to know him by name, to know him as both inexhaustibly great and inexhaustibly good, and to find your heart bouncing back and forth between those two realities. And that takes us right to the heart of the gospel. What I'm trying to explain to you here, because relativism relativism says this, it says God is only good and not also great. He's love, but not light. God loves and accepts everyone. There's no such thing as sin or hell you know, don't worry about any of those kinds of things. Love wins. God's, you know, God's, God's goodness will win out in the end. And if that's you, if that's the way you think of God as mainly loving, then here's the thing you have to face. Then it costs God nothing to save you. But, and that's too weak a view of God's love. Your pendulum won't swing far enough into the greatness of God to melt your heart as it swings back to say, if you, O Lord, mark iniquities, Who could stand, but with you there's forgiveness, therefore you are feared. But moralism, on the other hand, says God is only great and not also good. And if that's you, if you think God, if you think of God as mainly holy, mainly just, mainly severe, right? If you'll be you'll 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 live believing that 
you're saved by being as holy and good as he is. You're saved by your own effort. But here's the problem with that. That's too weak a view of God's holiness. Your pendulum from your view of the goodness of God won't swing far enough into the greatness of God to melt your heart so that you would sing with whichever of the Wesley brothers. I always get the two confused. But he said, amazing love. How can it be that thou, my king, shouldst die for me? And Christianity, of course, is in the middle And it says that God is great and good, right? That he is great. He cannot countenance evil. He never winks at a lie. He never shrugs at cruelty. He is moral perfection. Every sin must be punished. He is absolutely holy. And if you're not holy, there's hell. But this same God is also good. And so in order to forgive those he loved, he took hell into his own heart. And he suffered and he died and poured his wrath out upon his son just so you and I could be saved. The gospel shows us that God is more loving than relativism claims and he is more holy than moralism claims. And the more holy you seem to be, the more loving you seem to be, and the more loving you seem to be, the more holy he becomes. And do you see how this works? And so in Revelation, it says that God's throne, we've been talking about Revelation this morning, it says that God's throne is surrounded by a rainbow. And it's a really important biblical image. The rainbow, if you think about what a rainbow is, a rainbow is the place where the storm and the sunshine collide. Where the rain and the sun collide. Where the goodness and the greatness of God meet and burst. Oh, excuse me. Burst into brilliant color. Isn't that neat? The storm and the sunshine come together. The goodness and the greatness of God, they come together, they collide and burst with beautiful color and beauty. Now, the rainbow is the symbol of the cross. On the cross, Jesus endured the storm of God's wrath against sin. Here's what it says in the Gospels. It says the sky went dark in judgment. God's justice came down, but the cross is also the display of God's love because his justice came down upon the willing sacrifice of his son and not us. It is the place where the storm of God's holiness and wrath and the sunshine of God's grace and mercy come together. And the Bible says that you can only know God through Jesus Christ. He is infinitely great and infinitely good. And the further the pendulum swings into his greatness, the further it will swing back over into his goodness and back and forth. And you'll begin to see as you ponder and reflect and really see What God is doing there upon the cross, you begin to see that he is not just a father, he's a heavenly father. And he's not just a heavenly God, he's a heavenly father. And that's the only thing, that view of God, that's the only thing that can melt away the distortions in your view of the world and the distortions in your view of yourself. C.S. Lewis said, a lack of praise of God is a lack of reality. And so praising him Saying this prayer, hallowed be your name, praising him, helps us enter the real world and to glorify him by enjoying him more and more. And so as Isaac Watts, Isaac Watts uh, penned a a, um, doxology, and this really should be the prayer of our hearts as we consider how God would have us pray this way, where he says, glory to God the Father's name, who from our sinful race chose out his favorites to proclaim the honors of his grace, Glory to God, the Son be paid, who dwelt in humble clay, and to redeem us from the dead, 
gave his own life away. Glory to God, the Spirit, give from whom almighty power, from whose almighty power our souls, their heavenly birth derive and bless this happy hour. Glory to God that reigns above the eternal three in one who by the wonders of his love has made his nature known. Amen. Pray with me. Let's pray. Why don't we, why don't we practice this prayer together this morning? So as we come to the end of our service, what does it mean for you in the quiet moment that we have here to begin to pray that prayer? Hallowed be your name. What's one thing that you've been uh, consistently praying about recently? And could you back one step back away from the prayers that you've been praying and simply pray a different way? Simply in that thing that you've been praying about, just utter that previous prayer, Father, glorify your name. And what if you just left it to that? Oh, I'm worried about my kids. Father, glorify your name. Oh, my, they're, they're loved ones that are on death's doorbed. Father, glorify your name. Oh, there's so much uncertainty in the world right now. My, my stock portfolio is in the tank. Father, glorify your name. Heavenly Father, we are so quick to rush past worship and to make prayer a matter of just uh, saying as little as we have to to get as much as we need from you so we can go on and, and get about the really important things in our lives. Forgive us and help us, even in these moments here at the end of our service, to offer our hearts to you in the way that you desire. truly be people who learn to praise above all else and in praising you to see that that our petitions get changed and our confessions get changed and the rest of our whole life downstream from that habit of praise starts to look very differently and so would you do that come and stir something in us as we sing this song together here at the end stir something in us make it mean something more than it's ever meant before work in our hearts in such a way that these aren't just words this is, this is worship that we offer to you. And then may that be the fuel and the motivation for all the rest of, of life as you've called us to live it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so here's your homework this week. Okay, you didn't know you had homework when you came to church, but this week you do. So this week, find some time to start to build into the, the, habit, of your, the habit structure of your life. Just some moments throughout the week where all you do is turn towards God. Don't ask Him for anything. Just adore Him. Just praise Him. Put a song on in the car and sing. You know, we have, a, we have a set list of all the songs that we've sung in church this week. You can find that on Spotify and sing these songs again. Do something where you just turn your affections towards him. And here's what this benediction means. I promise you, I promise you because of what God says to us here as he sends us, that there will be ample opportunity in this next week for you to find something to give him praise or thanks for. Because these words mean that he, if your faith is in Jesus, goes before you to prepare a week full of blessing and, and wonder and good for you. Mercy and goodness are following you, will follow you into every day of this week. And so take some time to acknowledge that and turn it back around into praise. It'll begin, it'll begin to open up a prayer life for you that maybe you've not experienced before. So receive these words in anticipation of all the good things that he has in store, even though it may be hard good things. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you.
Don't miss peace.